Good morning to whoever is listening online. Brody, if you are overseas hearing these words right now, we miss you. And for everybody else who cannot be with us this morning, uh, hope that you are fed by God's word, even though you can't be sitting here or in this case, standing here with us. Please turn right now to Hebrews chapter one. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses five through 14. But for the sake of context, I'm going to read all of chapter one. Don't worry, it's only 14 verses, so this will not take incredibly long time. In Hebrews chapter one, please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed but you are the same and your years will have no end. And which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to your word this morning desperate to hear what you have to say to us. And in the midst of all of the changing and varied voices of our age, help us to hear your voice, which speaks life and hope and truth. And we pray, Father, that you would show us Jesus. By your Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would see Christ in all of his greatness, glory, and grace. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. You may be seated. We live in a time right now in the church that is marked by people walking away from the faith that they once held. We've seen the rise in a term exvangelical. I don't know if you've Heard that terminology, ex-evangelical, it's fairly self-explanatory. Over the last couple of years, there have been a number of fairly prominent people that have 
turned away from the faith and have posted deconversion stories on YouTube and other places like that. Perhaps you've run into that. But the problem of people walking away from the faith is not just a problem that is out there in the world or out there in the culture. It's a problem that is in here. We've probably all experienced friends and family members who have walked away from the church. And that can be an incredibly painful thing, can't it? It's something that I, I, I have some close friends whose children, once they've gotten to high school and college, have to this point walked away from the faith and the church and have not come back. And I see their pain as they struggle, as they pray for their children. And maybe you find yourself right now this morning in a place where you are questioning if you really do believe. You're questioning if Christianity is really worth it right now. And wherever you might be this morning in this ex-evangelical and deconversion story age, the book of Hebrews is for you. The book of Hebrews is for us. Hebrews was written to address people walking away from Christianity. We have to ask the question, why? Why do people walk away? Why do people who grew up in the church turn their back on Christ and, and walk away and, and do other things with their life? And I think the answer to that is complicated. We're going to see that throughout the book of Hebrews. We're going to talk about some of the spiritual and heart issues that might lead to that. I worked for four years in a college ministry, InterVarsity, and there were multiple times when I sat down and talked with students who were considering just giving up on Christianity, who were considering walking away. And one interesting thing that I noticed is that for most students who were thinking about walking away or who did, who did end up walking away, it wasn't because they did some deep research and came to a firm conclusion that they believed that the Bible was no longer historically reliable. It wasn't because they studied all of the philosophies of the world and they came to the conclusion that there was a philosophy out there that was more compelling than the biblical worldview. It was more often than not that students just became distracted, that other things became more important, other things became more desirable and worth chasing after, more fun, more satisfying than Jesus. And they said, I'm just going to chase after those things. And over time, their love of Christ drifted. And what did the author of Hebrews write to a people who faced the threat of walking away? What did he choose to focus on? One of the major themes of the book of Hebrews that we've already mentioned is that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the old covenant. He's greater than Moses, than the priests, than the sacrifices. Jesus is greater. The author of Hebrews was writing primarily to an ethnically Jewish audience, and they were tempted to go back from Christianity to the way they did things before. And he says to them, in essence, why would you turn to something that is so vastly inferior to what you have in Jesus? And we need to hear this message too. We need to know in our heads and in our hearts so that we can live out in our lives the reality that Jesus truly is greater than all other things. When our old life begins to look alluring to us, we need to take a long, hard look at Jesus and see that he is greater than anything else that we can chase after.
or turn to. In the verses that we're focusing on this morning, the main truth that the author wants us to understand is fairly straightforward and pretty simple. It's that Jesus is greater than the angels. And since he deemed it enough to have a very simple main point, I'm going to keep it a very simple main point and not try to make it hard. The main point this morning is Jesus is greater than the angels, okay? Verses one through three that we looked at last week emphasized how Jesus was a superior revelation. Jesus was greater than the prophets as the full and final revelation of God. Jesus is the son of God in those verses. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of the world, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who upholds the world, the one who made purification for sins, and the one who sits down at the right hand of God. Now, as we go through verses 5 through 14, we're going to notice that a lot of those same exact themes about who Jesus is pop back up. And what the author here is doing is he is revisiting those themes and expanding on them and defending them. And what's interesting is that he defends all those themes about Jesus using the Old Testament. Technically, this morning, I am preaching a sermon from the New Testament, but the words that are quoted from the Old Testament more than double the words from the author of Hebrews in this passage. So I guess you could say that I'm teaching an Old Testament overview more than I am even just teaching a New Testament passage. So I think that's going to be really interesting for us is we're going to spend more time diving into these quotations from the Old Testament than anything else this morning. And in verse four, we see he, he turns the focus away from Jesus being greater than the prophets. And he says that Jesus is as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, as we dive into Jesus being better than the angels, we should ask the question, why on earth does he focus on angels here? It seems like an odd place for him to go right at the beginning of this book. Like for us, you know, maybe he would focus on, you know, greater than Moses, greater than the sacrifices, but he starts off, Jesus is better than angels. You're like, what are you doing here? And we don't know exactly what problem he's trying to correct or deal with. We have a fairly good idea. We know one of the issues, at least, was an issue surrounding revelation from God. And we're going to see that next week at the beginning of Hebrews 2, the issue of angelic, angelic revelation and revelation in the Son, in Jesus, and how those things are contrasted. We also, looking in the New Testament, in the book of Colossians, have evidence that there were people in the time of the writing of the New Testament who were tempted to worship angels, and there were false teachers who were commending that people worship angels. And we know of at least one Jewish sect called the Essenes, who were an early Jewish sect, who treated the, uh, the angel Michael as being more important even than the Messiah. So we don't know exactly what the issue is here, but we do know that there was an issue in the early days of the church of people putting far too much focus and emphasis on angels, being far too interested and mesmerized in them and downplaying the importance even of the Messiah. I think that's part of what's going on here. He's showing, no, we need to not focus on these things that are flashy and cool. We must focus our attention on Jesus. So I'm going to highlight for us four ways in these quotations from the Old Testament that Jesus is greater than the angels. And then at the end, I'm going to spend some time in application. So this will be very exegesis heavy on the front and application heavy on the end. So first, Jesus is greater 
as son. Jesus is greater as son. So you see in verse four, the name, specifically the name that Jesus has inherited is more excellent than the name of the angels. Now the word angel in Greek means messenger and angels throughout scripture were used by God as messengers to his people. They would bring these messages from God. We even see that it's the birth of Jesus, God sending an angel to be a messenger for him. And there's no way that being a messenger for God is something that should be looked down upon. It's not that angels work was unimportant in any way, but it's that Jesus work and his name is way better than simply being a messenger from God. <clears throat> so look with me at verses five and six. For the which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So the emphasis here, the name that Jesus has gotten that is superior to the angels is the name of son. And he quotes from two Old Testament passages, Psalm 2, 7 and 2 Samuel 7, 14. Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. And these are both well-known messianic passages in the Old Testament. Psalm 2 is about the messianic king whom God would call son. This passage from uh, Psalm 2-7 is quoted elsewhere in the New Testament. It's quoted in Acts chapter 13, 32. It's applied to Jesus' resurrection. And then in Psalm 1, 4, uh, Romans 1-4, we see that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So the risen Jesus was declared to be son in a way that angels never were. And then the second verse quoted from is again, 2 Samuel 7, which is God's covenant with David, promising one of his descendants who would sit on his throne forever. And that this king would be called son, that God would call himself father and would call him his son. And the specific reason that the author of Hebrews goes to these is one to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the expectations of the Messiah. And then also to show that none of the sons of David could ever have fulfilled these verses ultimately. None of them could ever rightly truly be called the son of God. But Jesus has a unique relationship with the father. And that's a relationship of father and son. Now, it's important for us in reading through these and seeing that Jesus was declared to be the son at his resurrection. He's also declared to be son at his baptism, declared to be the son at his transfiguration. But we need to be very clear that it's not saying that Jesus wasn't the son. And then all of a sudden, at some point in his messianic ministry, he became the son. No, it's more that Jesus was declared to be the son in his work because he was uniquely qualified to be called son because he was already eternally the son of God. It's one of the things we confess in the Nicene Creed that Jesus is the son of God. And it's an eternal thing, a quality characteristic or descriptor of Jesus, that Jesus is the son of God. And because Jesus is eternally the son of God, this verse, this, this passage then goes to showing that Jesus is the correct object of worship. He's even the object of the worship of angels. 
Verse 6 quotes from the Greek translation of Deuteronomy 32, 43. It shows that Jesus is so vastly superior to angels, so much higher above them that they focus their worship on him. If this morning, while we were standing here singing our opening song, an angel just showed up the front of our sanctuary, we would probably all fall on our faces in just terror and fear and awe. There's an example in the New Testament of John at the end of Revelation. He's interacting with an angel, and he goes to worship the angel. And the, wor- and the angel says, no, don't, don't worship me, worship God. Angels are so spectacular that if we saw one, we would be tempted to worship them. But Jesus is so much more spectacular than them that they worship him. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing about Jesus. I think also reflecting on the fact that Jesus is worshipped throughout the New Testament should, again, be a proof to us that Jesus really is God. If there's one really simple passage to take people to who are questioning whether Jesus is really God, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses who are at your door or somebody else, I think Hebrews 1 is one of the best places to go, and we're going to see that over and over again, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the object of worship, which in Scripture you know is a huge deal, that you only worship God. You don't worship anybody else. To worship anybody but God is idolatry. But Jesus accepts worship, and Jesus is worshiped by the angels, and we're told that we should worship him as well, and that Jesus really is God. So Jesus is greater, and he's greater than the angels because he is the Son. And then second, Jesus is greater as king. Jesus is greater as king. So look at verse 7 with me. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, this is quoted from Psalm 104, which is a creation psalm. So this emphasizes that the angels are creations of God. And by calling them winds and flames of fire, he's emphasizing both the power of the work of angels and also the impermanence or temporariness, if that's a word, of the work of angels. What he uses here is thunderstorm language. He makes his angels winds and flames of fire, which is term for lightning, right? And you know, I've preached already in in this church on Psalm 29 and other places. I love thunderstorms. I love when you're standing outside and that cold wind blows and the trees start whipping, right? And then the the sky just lights up with fire and you hear this thunder that just shakes you down to the bone. And if you're sitting inside, it rattles your windows, right? And you just sit there and there's this mixed feeling of, of just absolute terror and awe at the same exact time. And so when the psalmist is comparing angels to a thunderstorm, he's not downplaying angels at all. Saying, in fact, angels are exceedingly powerful. They're, in a way, their work is compared to a thunderstorm, right? And so, again, that's why we feel fear and terror if we were to run into an angel. But also, in the same way that a thunderstorm comes and those winds come, the wind picks up, but then a half hour later, the thunderstorm rolls on and blows away. It's temporary. The work of angels is not eternal in the way that the work of Jesus is eternal. The work is powerful, but it's temporary. It's impermanent. 
In contrast, in verses 8 and 9, quoting Psalm 45, 6 through 7, the author says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So angels have a powerful role, but Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the king who sits on his throne forever and ever. I love that alongside this declaration of the kingship of Jesus, that his throne, his throne is forever and ever. I love one that it's directed at God. So where earlier in uh, Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, you have messianic passages being applied to Jesus, which shouldn't surprise, surprise us at all. The next two Psalms that he's quoted, if you read them and you read that line, your throne, O God, you wouldn't automatically think that this is referring to the messianic king. It's really referring to God, to Yahweh in the Old Testament. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So his view is that reading the Old Testament, when you run into God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, even those verses can be applied to Jesus. And I also love, though, that when he talks about the kingship of Jesus, he talks about the character of Jesus' reign. If we just had an almighty, all-powerful king and ruler, that could be an absolutely terrifying thing for us. Unless we knew that that almighty and all-powerful ruler and king was a good king and a good ruler. So it emphasizes that he rules with the scepter of uprightness. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. He's different than so many of the world powers and rulers right now. He's so different even than us. We have this tendency to love wickedness and hate righteousness. So many people who gain power love wickedness and hate righteousness. But we have a king who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. We have a good king and we can trust his rule. So Jesus is greater as son and he's greater as king. And third, Jesus is greater as creator. And I know that rhymes, so it should stick in your head. If there's one point that you remember later tonight or tomorrow or next week, it should be Jesus is greater as creator. You know, a little jingle. This is the emphasis in verses 10 through 12. Quotes from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. For a long time, when I read about creation or I'd go back to Genesis, just hear about a doctrine of creation, I would think only of God the Father being active in creation. But we should see that creation is the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Jesus is the creator. Jesus, with the Father and the Spirit, laid the foundation in the beginning. Jesus made the galaxies. Jesus made the nebulas and the black holes and the stars. And this is a really important distinction for us to understand. In Christian theology, there's a distinction called the creator-creature distinction that is essential for us to understand the nature of God. I once saw a good defense of Jesus being truly God described by taking a napkin and drawing a line in the middle of that napkin above the line drawing creator 
and underneath the line drawn creature or creation, and then asking, where would you put Jesus on this napkin? There are some today, some who hold to something similar to what the Arians that Josh mentioned taught. They would believe that Jesus is a a created thing. They would put him as close to that line as you can put him. He's the most exalted thing in creation. Jesus is majestic and glorious, but he's just not the creator. But when we read verses like this, and we look at the beginning of John 1, or in Colossians 1, we see that Jesus is the one who created all things. And if Jesus created all things, then he cannot be in the creation side of that napkin. It doesn't work. He must be on the creator side. And if he is on the creator side, then Jesus is eternal. And Jesus is God and king. And that's where the mind of the psalmist goes. Goes to contemplating the eternality of God. And in this case, the eternality of Jesus. I want you to think of the most permanent thing that you can think of in the world. Maybe it's mountains. I know when I'm off hiking with Lexi, when you're standing on the top of the mountain, a mountain feels like this unmovable, huge thing. For the psalmist, his mind went up, off to the heavens, to the earth and the heavens, to the skies and the stars. You might think of the permanence of the Packers making the NFC Championship game and just not making the Super Bowl. It feels like that will never end. But you can take the most permanent thing in your mind, compare it to Jesus, And it's going to look like old clothes. That's where the psalmist goes. Compared to Jesus, the stars and galaxies are like clothes that have grown old and wore out and dirty. We all know how quickly clothes wear out. You buy a new shirt, you buy new jeans, you buy new shoes, and the stitching comes undone in your shirt. You get a stain on your jeans, you wear a hole in them, the tread in your shoes starts wearing out. Earlier this fall, Lexi and I were hiking up on the uh, North Country Trail along the shores of Lake Superior in the UP. Lexi had new hiking pants that she loves. And we were sitting next to a fire and an ember went flying up from fire and landed on her pants and burned a hole in her brand new hiking pants. Clothes just don't last, do they? We know that clothes don't last. But next to Jesus, the stars are like your old jeans. Think about that for a moment. Think about the eternality of Jesus as our creator, that he is forever and ever. He never grows old. He never grows weary. He never wears out. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and for all eternity. Jesus is greater as creator. And lastly, Jesus is greater as victor. Jesus is greater as victor. In verse 14, we learn about the angels again, that they are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. This should be really encouraging to us, that angels are sent to minister to and to serve those who are to inherit salvation. They are, their whole purpose is to serve those who are the people of God. As a child, one of my favorite Old Testament passages is in 2 Kings uh, chapter 6. It's a story about Elisha, the prophet. 
the king of Syria was getting frustrated because the prophet Elisha was kept telling the king of Israel what the king of Syria was going to do in battle because he was a prophet and, and the Lord kept revealing to him, this is what the king of Syria is going to do. So Israel could always thwart the king of Syria in battle. And obviously that's frustrating for the king of Syria. So he's, he sends one of his servants and sends out an entire army to go to Elisha's city to besiege it and to capture Elisha, which for one is really funny because if Elisha knew what the king was going to be doing in battle at all times, then wouldn't Elisha just know that he was going to be sending an army to a city? I mean, if the king had really thought through that, he might have recognized the folly of that plan. But the king sends this huge army. They come to the city that Elijah dwells in, and the army surrounds the city. And Elisha's servant wakes up in the morning. He walks up to the gate of the city and looks out, and he sees this huge army. And so he runs to Elisha. He says, Elijah, what are we going to do? There's this huge army. And I love what Elisha says to him. He says, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prays, and the eyes of the servant are opened. And what he saw is that the huge Syrian armies were themselves surrounded by flaming horses and chariots of angel armies. And if he had been aware of the presence of those angels when he first saw that army, he probably wouldn't have been all that afraid of it. And Elisha knew, Elijah knew God will protect his people. And he sends out even his angels to protect his people. That should be incredibly encouraging to us. Do you know what's more encouraging than a huge flaming army of horses and chariots that would surround the enemies of God, God's people? Knowing that Jesus is victorious is far more encouraging. Verse 13 quotes from Psalm 110.1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus has already won the victory in his death and his resurrection. And he's ascended to sit at the right hand of God the Father. As verse 3 says, after making purification for sins, after accomplishing salvation through the victory over sin and death by his own death, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is victorious, and Jesus will be victorious over all evil when he returns. All his enemies will be made as a footstool for his feet. He will come and reign and make all things right. Yes, the work of angels is important. Is important. It's comforting. It's encouraging. But they do not compare with the comfort and encouragement that we get from seeing Jesus and his reign and his victory. So I want to end considering some applications from this. First, you must know that Jesus is greater than all. You must know that Jesus is greater than all. And when I say no, I'm speaking about your head and your heart. One interesting thing is that Hebrews chapter one does not say a single direct word about what you ought to do. 
It doesn't say a single direct word about how you ought to live. Think about that for a moment. So is it just not a practical passage then? No, it's incredibly practical. We need to see that correct biblical application not only involves what we're sent out to do, it involves what we are supposed to know and think and what we are supposed to love. At Livingstone, we talk a lot about head, heart, and hands, right? We're called to know and to love and to serve God and others. And so when we apply scripture, we need to apply it to all of those pieces because they're all interrelated. If we just were told, now go and do stuff, but scripture didn't speak to our hearts and our desires and what we know, we wouldn't actually even have the motivation to go out and do what God calls us to do. So all of these pieces, head, hearts, and hands are all interconnected. And so before I say anything about your hands this morning, I want to speak to your head and I want to speak to your heart. And I want you to think right now of the most important person or thing in the world to you. The most important person or thing in this world to you. Now I want you to compare that person or thing to Jesus. For a first century Jewish Christian, the book of Hebrews goes through the long list of things that would be important to you. The temple, the sacrifices, Moses, the prophets, the priests, and even angels. Angels would be high on the list of the most impressive, important, and powerful things that you could possibly imagine. But they cannot compare to Jesus. Greatness really is a comparative thing. Yesterday, some of us played some ultimate Frisbee over at East Hall Fields, and it was windy, and so my throws weren't as good as they normally are. But if you stick me in a group of people that are not experienced playing ultimate Frisbee, I'm probably going to look fairly good. Next weekend on Saturday, I'm playing a game of ultimate Frisbee with an alumni team, and we're going to be playing against Stevens Point's college team. Stick me in that game, I'll probably look fairly average. If you stick me in a game against the Madison Radicals, the professional team in Wisconsin, I'm going to absolutely look like an amateur out on that field. Greatness is comparative. What we need to see is that if you stick Jesus next to anything else, whatever you compare him to, he will always be better. Jesus will always win. And do you know in your head and know in your heart that Jesus is better than anything else? We live in a world of constant distractions. There are a thousand things pulling our minds and our hearts in a thousand different directions at all times. And in that world of constant distraction, do we give the attention of our minds and the attention of our hearts to Jesus? One of my favorite quotes of all time is by a Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane. The quote goes like this. It's actually on the front of your worship guides. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. For every look that you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. 
And I think we can modify this statement a bit for our world and our day. For every look that you take at Facebook or Instagram or any social media, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at your favorite sports team or athlete, I'm looking to make sure no one's checking the Packers score right now. For every look at your favorite sports team or athlete, take 10 looks at Jesus. For every look at the news, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at Netflix, your favorite band, your favorite politician, your favorite book, or your favorite hobby, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. A husband who spends more time watching sports than with his wife is probably not going to foster a loving relationship with her. And do we really think that we're going to grow in our love for Jesus if we give all of the attention of our head and our hearts to other things? We need to ponder Jesus and his excellency. We need to study his attributes. We need to ask ourselves if there are any rivals to Jesus in our hearts. We need to know that Jesus is greater than all. And when we know that Jesus is greater than all, then we will live like Jesus is greater than all. It will totally transform how we live. I think that knowing that Jesus is greater than all and more desirable than anything else is the great idolatry killer. You want to kill idolatry in your heart. Focus your eyes on Jesus and that he is greater. When you're wrestling with temptation to turn to your sin, when you're wrestling with temptation to turn away or even walk away from Christ, you need to ask yourself the question, which is greater, sin or Jesus, power or Jesus, pleasure or Jesus, reputation or Jesus, food or Jesus, stuff or Jesus. You will never find anything that is greater or more satisfying than him. In a time of deconversion, the rise of the term exvangelical, where there's a real pull on us and on our hearts to turn away from Christ, to give the attention of our minds and hearts to things that are less than him, we need to be reminded day by day that Jesus is greater. And as we come this morning to the Lord's Supper, we have an opportunity before us to remember and proclaim something absolutely astounding about Jesus. Jesus is truly greater than all. Jesus is transcendent and majestic and glorious and holy. Yet when we come and we take the bread, when we come and we drink of the cup, we remember that the one who is far above all things, the one who is greater than all came down for us. The one who is greater than all became a man. He dwelt among the lowly. And ultimately, he gave his body and he gave his blood for those who are lost and wretched sinners. And because of this, the, the God and the Jesus who is so high above us, he's so high above us that he's exalted above the angels. He comes to us and he says, come, have a meal with me. Come, fellowship with me. Come, 
draw near to me as I have drawn near to you. I have purchased you with my blood. I want to have a meal with you. As we come this morning to the Lord's table, table, let's take it as an opportunity to take our eyes off of the things of this world, to take our eyes even off of ourselves and to fix our eyes on the transcendent and glorious and greatest of all Jesus, who has shed his blood for us, and who draws near to us to fellowship with us. Let me read one more time the quote from Robert Murray McShane. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. This morning as we take the Lord's Supper, take 10 looks at Christ and know that he is satisfying. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for sending your son, your only son, into the world. That the one who is transcendent would become imminent and draw near. The God who created the world, who dwells in all light and eternity, would come and shed his blood that we might know you. Father, help us to see our hearts. Help us to see and know the places of our hearts that long for things more than they long for Jesus. Help us then also to know that he is truly greater, that he truly is more satisfying. Give us spiritual taste buds who long for him more than they long for sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.